0: How's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavier, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino is a board-licensed physician and functional medicine practitioner certified through the Institute for Functional Medicine. He's also one of the most vocal proponents and practitioners of the carnivore diet, which in case you haven't heard, has taken the internet by storm due to its extreme nature. It's an all-meat diet, folks. And the stories of health effects coming from its adherence around the globe are remarkable. I relish the opportunity to talk to Dr. Saladino because, well, he's a medical doctor and a very intelligent one at that. Over the next hour, I get to the bottom of why this diet is generating such buzz, the scientific reasoning behind its claimed benefits, who it can potentially benefit from it, and how to execute it properly. I approached this conversation with intense skepticism because, as you may know, I advocate for including lots of plants in one's diet. But I always try to stay open-minded to new ideas. And I have to admit, Dr. Saladino makes a compelling case that certainly warrants further research. And at the very least, will get you to think critically about the common advice to limit meat consumption and eat more fruits and veggies. In our chat, you're gonna discover why Dr. Saladino thinks the associations between plant consumption and longevity is weak science. The plants that are likely in your kitchen right now that are the most toxic, according to Dr. Saladino, including one veggie that I routinely eat, yikes. Why, despite eating a ton of red meat, iron accumulation, which we know isn't healthy, isn't a concern for Dr. Saladino. Why Dr. Saladino believes you don't need fiber for good digestion or a healthy microbiome, yes, you heard me correctly, and so much more. I have to admit, this is one of my favorite episodes of The Genius Life to date. And that is because it's such a good conversation. And you're going to learn so much, as I have. And... Um Paul's a great guy, he's very passionate about what he does and uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into it. But before we do, I want to give a shout out to this uh, the sponsor of this episode of the show and that is Ned. Ned makes a line of very high-end CBD products and I've heard over and over again from very good friends of mine who I trust about CBD that they make among the highest quality product that they have seen. Now, CBD has had a lot of buzz lately because cannabinoids regulate nearly every biological system in the body. Some of the best known uses are as a sleep aid to treat insomnia, as an anti-inflammatory and even as a natural pain reliever. As always, your mileage may vary, but I think it's worth giving a shot. And if you do intend on trying out CBD, you want to get the highest quality product that you can find. All NED products are made from organic, whole, and or natural ingredients, and they are cold extracted, and the extract is dissolved in a solution of pure MCT oil. If you'd like to give CBD a try, I recommend going over to... HelloNed.com and using promo code Genius, where you're going to get to save 15% off of your first purchase. Again, it's HelloNed.com. Promo code Genius will get you 15% off of your first order. And honestly, I look forward to hearing what you think about CBD and whether or not it helps you. So let me know. You can find me through Instagram or my website. Now, guys, we are seconds away from my chat with Dr. Paul Saladino, going deep into all things carnivore diet i am so pumped you guys this is going to be a really good chat and i feel like it's going to be one that you come back to again and again because dr saldino is just so knowledgeable Um, and whether or not you intend on uh trying a carnivore diet you're going to learn a lot regardless But before we get to it, please take a moment to support The Genius Life. You can do that by leaving a rating and review for the show on iTunes and letting me know what I can do to improve it. Or by joining the newsletter at MaxLugavere.com. That's my personal newsletter where every week or so I send you um, science that has the potential to change your life. Updates um, and episodes that you can't miss from my podcast or even exclusive discounts and products that I personally and painstakingly curate. And you can opt out at any time, but I highly recommend you join the thousands of other subscribers. And by doing that, you're going to get a free download PDF of 11 supplements that you can potentially use to boost your brain function. All right, well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I do not want to dilly-dally anymore. Let's plunge headfirst into this very relevant and topical topic um, of carnivory and all-meat diets. Let's rock. All right, we're rolling. Paul Saladino, thank you for being on my show, man. What's up, brother? It's good to be here. Thanks for... Where'd you come up from? You were in San San Diego. San Diego. Nice. You live down there. I do. I just moved down
1: there. I finished residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. I've been struggling with cold, dark
0: winters. Oh, man.
1: And Now I'm in paradise.
0: Nice. Well, you're one of the I'm excited to talk to you because I get a lot of questions about the carnivore diet and you're like one of the most prominent guys in the space. So I feel like this is gonna be cool. I'm gonna get to nerd out and ask you all the questions that I've been meaning to ask somebody who's actually on the diet.
1: I love talking about it, man. It's super yeah. interesting. It's been a super fun journey for me.
0: and you you definitely walk the walk. I mean, you showed up to my apartment here. what What do you have in your backpack
1: right now? <laughs> this is this reminds me of the time I went to go hang out with Ben Greenfield and he was like, what do you want to eat? So I brought um, I brought with me some sirloin, some meat, and okay. some suet. And the thing about the suet is it's from U.S. Wellness Meats and they put it through a meat grinder. So it looks like rotini pasta or I think that's, what did you think it was?
0: I, well, I mean, I thought that I was like catching you eating some veggies because it looks, it looked to me like cauliflower. You
1: were like busted. Yeah. I was like,
0: dude, is that cauliflower? I love love cauliflower.
1: Of course, I tried to give you some so (laughs) that you could substantiate the fact that it was not cauliflower. (laughs) But I haven't convinced you to eat it yet. So that was beef suet. And we can talk about why I eat it. That's perinephric fat. I think that the fat to protein ratio in a carnivore diet is interesting. It's a fun metric to play with. So I'm eating for lunch, dinner. I usually eat two meals a day. Uh, for my afternoon feed today, I'm eating some grass-fed animal meat and some animal fat.
0: So for people that don't, what what is perinephric fat in English?
1: Perinephric fat means fat that is around the kidneys. Wow. One of the things that's really interesting to me is that when we go to the butcher, we're only seeing a small amount of the animal. As you know, we're really separated from what animals look like in the wild and what animals look like when they're have their skin off uh, not everybody gets to go to medical school not everybody you know has had the pleasure and or pain of medical school in medical school we do human dissection you see what's inside of a person and you can kind of extrapolate that to what's inside of an animal. But it's crazy, we are these systems in our bellies, we can't think about this too much because it's kind of a a head trip, right? (laughs) There's a heart pumping in here, there's a liver, there's a pancreas, and there are kidneys and and there's omental fat. So one of the fattiest places on an animal is the abdomen. There's omentum, which is sort of these like aprons of fat that Mm. cover our intestines. And then the kidneys aren't just floating in space in a ruminant animal like a cow or in a human. They're sort of encased in fat. And that's a good source of fat for people that are looking for fat from animals. But we never see that at the butcher counter. Yeah, Just like we never see liver or kidneys. And the meat that we see has often had a lot of the fat trimmed off it. So Mm. we're kind of getting a piece of it. But what's interesting to me is thinking about the way our ancestors might've eaten animals, it might've looked very different than the way we do it today.
0: Yeah. Are you eating it just for like macro, you know, purposes fulfilling, you know, a certain macro ratio or are there nutrients that you're chasing by eating the the fat specifically in the peri kidney area? Both. Oh.
1: So I think it's very useful to think about any diet, both from a macronutrient perspective and from a micronutrient perspective, the fat to protein macro ratio on a carnivore diet, I think is a fun metric to play around with. And, I believe that eating certain organs of the animal gives you unique micronutrient profiles as mm. well. I would imagine that in the fat, I'm getting more of the fat-soluble vitamins. One of the things I've been meaning to look up is the, and I don't know if anyone's actually done this, but I'm really curious about things like the vitamin K2 content, for instance, of the perinephric fat or some of these other things. So, mm.
0: super interesting. Yeah, we were talking just before we started rolling. I, f- I feel like there's probably some some truth to the you know the the ancient wisdom that the part you know a a given part of an animal would benefit that you know it's analogous part in you you know like eating the brain of a grass-fed cow I feel like would be loaded with DHA I mean I had uh James DeNicola Antonio on my show and he was talking about the fact that they now are, are starting to believe that it was the consumption of brains you know of other animals that led to the growth of the human brain um in our you know our ancient past so I feel like this is uh it's super interesting and I'm sure science you know I'm sure there's research out there to validate that
1: there's a little bit, but one of the things that's disappointing to me is that we haven't really gone and looked at animal organs and in a very specific way looked at what nutrients are there. Hmm. The nutrient content of animal foods is quite far behind the times. If you looked up the vitamin C content of, of uh, beef, for instance, they would say zero, but clearly we know there's some vitamin C in muscle meat. And if you look up the vitamin and mineral content of brain, nobody knows. There's never been a paper published that I'm aware of of the vitamin or mineral content of the brain. But certainly we expect tons of DHA, neurotrophic growth factors, sphingomyelin, lots of cholesterol in a good sense to make to grow a brain. And I think you're absolutely right, there is this hope, this idea, which I think is mostly founded in science and works from a sort of a perspective of ancestral eating as well, that like is going to benefit like in some ways. Yeah. And eating a brain is a good way to grow a brain.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just passes the, the the simple test of logic, which shouldn't be underappreciated, you know? Like, it just it makes total sense. But, okay, so let's take a step back. You what, First of all, what is a carnivore diet? Just for people who might not have heard of it. Because I feel like it's, even today, I encounter some people who, you know, like, have no idea that this movement, this trend exists. So, this is a great
1: question to start off with, and the answer is probably more difficult than one might imagine. I think, technically defined, a carnivore diet would be a diet that mimics a diet for humans that mimics the way a carnivorous animal might eat mm. which would be eating other animals and essentially exclusively other animals at the exclusion of all plants and believe me when i first heard about it i thought it was bonkers <laughs> i was like that's crazy you know i'm you know i've been in the functional medicine world for a while and in that world there is this very strong notion that plants have unique things which benefit humans But the carnivore diet movement, which is gathering steam, and we're seeing all sorts of incredible healing stories, and many anecdotes of people improving from all sorts of things, autoimmune disease, inflammatory conditions, et cetera, psychiatric illness, suggests that there's no one thing in plants that you need that is unique, that you can't get in animals to form an optimal human, and that the exclusion of plants may actually be beneficial for many people because we know that pretty much all plants have some degree of plant toxins. I think some plants have more or less plant toxins than others, but strictly speaking, a carnivorous diet is a, what I would say, is a whole foods animal-based diet, is the best definition. So it's all animals, and we can go into details, all parts of animals, I believe, is the way to do it, and no plant matter.
0: Now, do you, do you believe that this diet is like a therapeutic diet for certain people? Or is this a diet that you think, you know, we should all be on?
1: Ah, uh, you're just hitting this is like the, 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 you're just going right for the jugular here, right? <laughs> <Of> <laughs> no, course. I love it. It's good. Let's put it out there. So I think the answer to that question is yes and no. Um, and I'll frame it this way. It's my perspective, looking at evolution, looking at where we've come from as humans, and we can talk a little, little bit about that paleo-anthropologic evidence. But it's my perspective that humans have been eating animals for our entire evolution as humans. And that as you suggest, it was probably the consumption of animals that made us human, that allowed our brains to grow into the magical things they are now. And if you look at the size of the human brain over the last six million years, Pre-human evolution as primates, it was fairly stable, 300, 400 milliliters, you know, the small, a small amount of a cranium in like a primate. And that primate evolution was 30 million years. So 30 million years of eating plants, our brain stayed about the same. About 4 million years ago, Australopithecus showed up. And then about 2 million years ago, Homo habilis, Homo erectus were around. And our brain size literally shot—it just shot up. You know, it just figuratively exploded. The curve looks logarithmic. It goes from a slight slope up to a really steep thing. And within 500,000 years, our brains were over 1,000 cc's, peaking at about 1,500 cc's. So five times size growth in a few million years. And that was probably due to the hunting of animals and the consumption of animals. I think there's a lot of compelling evidence for that. Incidentally, in the recent, in the recent past our brains have shrunk a little bit Mm. the apex was about 1500 cc's now they're about 1350 cc's there are lots of theories about that which we can speculate on later perhaps but now i think that that is very interesting information the fact that eating animals made us human i think that is a that's that's a postulate that i have and i think that that informs one of the things that we should think about with a carnivore diet the second thing is that if we look at evidence for carnivory by stable isotope studies and Neanderthals and Homo sapiens living about 80,000 years ago. We can look at bones that were preserved and we see such high levels of nitrogen isotopes that we were considered to be complete carnivores then Hmm. because we had more nitrogen in our bones than other known carnivores like hyenas. And the way that works with those nitrogen isotopes is that the more animals you eat, the more you accumulate nitrogen and the more of your diet that is plants, you'll have less nitrogen. So they can tell an animal's diet more or less based on the relative amounts of these stable nitrogen isotopes. What they saw was we had so much, we were higher than other known carnivores at the time. So there's pretty good at least paleoanthropologic evidence that humans were essentially carnivorous and the, the vast majority of our diets were animals even 80,000, 70, 80,000 years ago when Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were still coexisting in sort of Northern Europe. Now, that I think creates this this idea that this next step of the process of thinking about whether this is appropriate for all humans is when we look at what would be an ideal diet for all humans, Mm -hmm. I would define that as a diet that provides all the nutrients that a human needs to function optimally in the most bioavailable forms without any toxins. And as I've gotten into this, I've realized that a carnivore diet kind of satisfies that from my perspective. And so what I've come to believe is that at our roots, as humans, we are all pretty biologically similar. There are differences certainly, and I believe there are epigenetic differences, there are differences at the level of actual DNA, there are single nucleotide polymorphisms. But I think at a fundamental level, at fundamental human biochemical level, I believe that all humans are programmed to do well on a no sit carnivore diet. The nuance comes in, in the fact that I also believe and seem to observe that some humans can tolerate more plants than others. Hmm. But I think that. The answer is yes and no in the fact that I think that most people, perhaps everyone, I believe will thrive on a nose carnivore diet, and I believe that many people will be able to incorporate some plants into their diet. Some people can probably incorporate a lot of plants into their diet, but there's a subset of people who really don't incorporate any plants into their diet to be optimally healthy. So it's, it's all of the accoutrements, it's all the things you add to a nose carnivore diet that are variable between people, and that makes it look like there's a lot of variability, but I think the foundationally, an tail carnivore diet could provide a pretty darn ideal template for basically every human on the planet. Whether or not every human on the planet needs to eat that to function optimally is questionable, but I think that it could provide this ideal template from which people could uh, either branch off or add or stay there if they find that to be the most ideal state.
0: So what about, I mean, I'm sure many of my listeners are thinking about, you know, the epidemiology that they've heard of perhaps where, you know, looking at the world's blue zones, people that, that tend to eat more plants, right? They have better health. And that's kind of where observational research I think is valuable, right? Like if you, if plants were going to be that deleterious to health, you'd expect, you'd expect, I feel like to see some kind of effect at the population level, right? Like I get the, the, um, question of fish a lot does you know does the fact that mer- you know plastic is now polluting our oceans that there's mercury found in fish does that negate the benefits perhaps that you get from eating a piece of wild salmon for example and the truth is I, I don't think that it does because you look observationally people who eat more fish seems to have seem to have you know reduced risk for various neurodegenerative conditions even at you know across the age spectrum better memories and the like so like what so how do you reconcile the fact that maybe some, you know, people, all people, you know, can thrive on this on this plant-free diet, with the fact that people seem to be doing pretty good when incorporating plants in their diet.
1: So there's a couple of questions wrapped up here. Yeah. <laughs> the first part might be regarding the validity of the blue zones hypothesis in general. Okay. And I'll just comment on that, and then we can go to the other ones. I think the concept of blue zones is often repeated, and um, it bugs me a little bit because though I think the concept is valuable. I think that Dan Buettner did a little bit of cherry picking here, and if you look at the blue zones that have been selected, there really were many blues, There were many areas where we see exceptional longevity, where people eat lots of meat as well hmm. that were left out. Iceland, uh, he failed to mention that the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, which is included in the blue zones, actually is a region for male longevity, and they eat a ton of meat. Hmm. If we look at Hong Kong, that's where people have the longest life expectancy in the world as a population that eat a pound and a half of meat a day. Wow. So the idea that eating smaller amounts of meat and more plants is associated with longevity doesn't really work for me if we look across populations, nor do I think we should be studying it in that way. Iceland is a great example. They have the highest percentage of centenarians that I've seen per capita, and there aren't many plants that grow in Iceland. It's mainly an animal-based diet. They eat some plants. But your second question is very valid and was asked, has been asked to me a couple of times by my good friend Tommy Wood. And he said, why don't we see the signal for plants being deleterious in epidemiology studies? And what I believe the answer to that is twofold. The first thing is that if we are, that, that basically everyone all over the world eats plants, right? So, we're not going to be able to distinguish the effect of plants if everyone's eating plants. There's really no epidemiology that's been done on a culture that has an animal based diet. If we looked at perhaps Inuits or people that had similar rates of, uh, similar degrees of healthcare and sanitation, then we could really compare epidemiology to population level for people who are on a more or less animal-based diet and a more or less plant-based diet. So then what we're seeing across all people is this contamination with the idea that everybody's eating plants. There's omnivores eating plants. There's people that are eating more plants, less plants, but everybody's eating plants. So I don't think we're going to see a real signal there. The second thing is that I'm not sure that population studies and mortality are the best way to see this signal because of healthcare the way it is. If we studied something like autoimmune disease or... Uh, an inflammatory marker like inflammatory bowel disease that I think might be a more sensitive metric, and it would have to be an incidence that we'd be looking at rather than you know a, a like a mortality right because what we know now is that people can get sick and we can keep them alive for a long amount of time and the mortality looks the same but they're not as well right and so that's my problem with a lot of these observational epidemiology studies is they don't necessarily qualify the health of a population, they'll tell you when people are dying and how long they're living, but as we know, we are not a healthier culture today than we were 80 years ago necessarily, but we're certainly living longer. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's that's my observation, that I think there's a lot of chronic disease now. We know that obesity is rising, heart disease is rising, cancer is rising, so I would say we're not a healthier population but we're living longer. So if we're using mortality as a metric, we're sort of missing the granular details there. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, 100%. You mentioned earlier that some people are better adapted to handle plants and you also said that some plants are more toxic than others. Um, So who do you think is the right candidate to try a carnivore diet? And for those who maybe are, are not about to jump on the carnivore bandwagon, what are the plants that you see being the most problematic in the modern food supply?
1: Yeah, I think this, there's a really interesting concept that I've been thinking about recently, which is the, the idea of carnivore-ish, or carnivore adjacent. I'm sort yeah. of finishing up my book now, and there's gonna be a chapter, or a portion of a chapter, called How to Be Carnivore-ish. <laughs> and I think that this is a very valid question. I think that the carnivore diet right now appeals to people who are sick. And I think that's great, and I think that has a very distinct, utility for people as an elimination diet for people who are sick, people who haven't gotten to optimal health. As I said earlier, I really believe strongly that a carnivore diet could be an optimal place for every human on the planet, but I also accept that there is a quality of life equation that overlies the whole context. And that for some people, eating a carnivore diet might not, be fun- might not be functional, it might not be doable, and it might decrease their quality of life more than the carnivore diet would increase their quality of life. I mean,
0: if you're saying it means that they got to carry kidney fat in their backpacks, I, don't, I feel like most people are not going to be willing most to do that. Most
1: people may not do that. <laughs> I- I'm also careful to say that the way that I do it is sort of an experiment, right? I'm the astronaut. I'm like the super pirate way ahead there. And I wouldn't say that that's the translatable way to do it, but you bring up a valid point there. And I'm always a little bit cheapest about telling people the way I'm doing things. There are much more pragmatic ways to do it a carnivore <laughs> diet than carrying kidney fat in your backpack. But I think that for people who are in a space where they're not feeling optimal, right? They have an autoimmune disease, they have inflammation, they're not sleeping well, they have low libido, they have low energy, they can't lose weight. I think those are the kind of people that could think about approaching a trial period of a carnivore diet. I think in the book I'm going to hat tip whole 30 and call it a carnivore 30, right? I think with any distinct dietary change, and I'd be curious about your perspective on this, it's helpful for people to think about it in terms of short-term intervention. Don't think about it for the rest of your life. Think about it as like a month or two months. But I think that that kind of an intervention can be very valuable for people because it will give them a sense of perspective and it'll help them understand which foods might be triggering them, how good they could feel. I think these elimination diet interventions are extremely powerful for people, whether it's carnivore, autoimmune paleo, gluten-free, whatever. This is where we get the data that we need about how we live as humans and which things are triggering us and which things are really creating optimal health. And so I think that for people who are not in a good space, who have tried other things and haven't found good results, a carnivore diet can present a really, really incredible option. I was just at KetoCon this past weekend and I had this incredible experience where this woman came up to me and she said, I tried everything, and I went carnivore, and I had three autoimmune diseases, it was like lupus, Sjogren's, and maybe fibromyalgia, and they all got better, and I've lost 80 pounds, and I'm feeling amazing, thank you for your work, and I thought, that's amazing, that's fantastic. Just to hear that for some people it could have that effect, I think is, that right there made all the work worth it. And that's really cool, and that's someone that was really suffering. She was 80 pounds overweight, she had three autoimmune diagnoses, she tried paleo, she tried keto, And then she cut out plants and things really started to shift. That's a perfect example, right? I don't think that's only the people that will benefit. I think that some people are biohackers or they wanna know what optimal could feel like or they're curious what a carnivore diet would feel like and I think it's great for those people as well and they, they find benefits they weren't expecting. Personally, I had eczema that was kind of persistent throughout years and years and years of an organic paleo diet and I thought there's something still wrong. And then I went carnivore about a year ago and as you can see, I live it. I carry <laughs> perinephric kidney fat around with me. And my eczema finally went away. But what I didn't expect was that my mental state got better. I was in residency and I didn't even know, but I suddenly felt more resilient, more happy, and just had like a better emotional space overall. I was more positive. I didn't even expect it to happen. I didn't even know that I was not optimal. And it wasn't like I was suffering and I probably could have gone through the rest of my life at that state and been perfectly happy, but things got better. And so I think that's a good application. If people want to optimize or they want to experiment, I think it's a safe way to do that. Now, who can tolerate plants and which plants are more toxic? I think that that's where you know I would say if somebody's feeling good and they're feeling optimal, why change, right? You're already kicking butt. Do keep doing it, you know. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep kicking butt and sharing with people how they can do better too. But if people are not doing good, I think that the elimination is where we find the value, and then. Once people have eliminated, they can add things back in and they might see which plants they tolerate. I think those who tolerate plants will probably know they're tolerating plants because they're doing great. They're kicking butt. There's this also this asterisk on the discussion which I'm gonna start calling the Rich Roll asterisk. And you know, I did a podcast with him and he's a great guy. And I always wonder how Rich Roll would do on a carnivore diet. Clearly he's done some incredible things athletically and he may be someone that's genetically predisposed to do pretty well on plants. And in the back of my mind I'm thinking, Man, I bet he would be even more of a beast on carnivore. <laughs> I don't know. We'll let you know if I get him to try it. <laughs> it's
0: it's funny bring him up because I met, I got to spend some time with him this past weekend, actually for the first time. Very nice guy. Did he mention me? He didn't. No, he didn't. But um, but we we share a chiropractor. Oh, that's funny. Appa- apparently, yeah.
1: Yeah, I did a podcast on the minimalist with him, and we disagreed over our conceptualization of the way that a carnivore diet would impact the environment. And I would encourage people to listen to that podcast if they have curiosity about that. But he seemed like a great guy, and I thought, wow. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I bet you do even better on a carnivore diet, but who knows? And so plants that are more or less toxic, I think that if I were to draw this collection, and this is something I'll probably do in my book as well, when we are looking at plant toxins, the most highly defended parts of plants are the reproductive parts, the seeds. And seeds extend beyond what we colloquially think of as seeds to include nuts, grains, seeds, and legumes. These are all seeds. And this is something that shouldn't be too foreign to people. Stephen Gundry has done a great job of popularizing the notion of lectins. These are carbohydrate-binding proteins that can trigger autoimmunity, potentially trigger leaky gut. There's been some incredible research now about uh, in lower uh, animal organ systems, specifically worms and mice, that these lectins might actually travel through the vagus nerve to the brain and deposit in the basal ganglia, which are the movement centers of the brain. And in those, lower or- animal organ systems may mimic Parkinsonian symptoms. Mm. So very compelling research that lectins may be affecting us throughout the body, and lectins are found mostly in seeds. They're also found in a few other places, but I think most of the toxins are in seeds, and this may not come as a great surprise to people who are interested in paleo or grain-free diets, but if we really look further, there are many further toxins in the stems and leaves of plants, and these are also parts of plants that they don't want to get eaten. A plant doesn't want any of it parts to get eaten but it really doesn't want its seeds to get eaten it doesn't want a sprout to get eaten because if you eat part of a sprout it's dead and then it doesn't want its leaves or its stems to get eaten and so there's a lot of toxins in stems and leaves it seems to me evolutionarily that if we were to eat plants and this is also taking data from indigenous cultures we would have sought out seasonal fruit and tubers occasionally and there are some tubers that are more or less toxic so I think that the least toxic plant foods would be fruit on a seasonal basis and probably tubers with the qualifications that there are still downsides to fruit in my opinion and there are still downsides to most tubers specifically with regard to tubers we know that sweet potatoes are quite high in oxalates some people have more or less ability to, to detoxify oxalates but we can see that oxalates probably cause more problems than we've been thinking about for the last hundred years in nephropathy and some people who are predisposed they cause kidney stones they are known to deposit in the thyroid and the breast tissue uh, they probably deposit in all of our organs, and it's a, a two-carbon carboxylic acid molecule that is a waste product in humans. We don't really use it, so oxalates are an issue. Yeah. Fruit, as we know, contains fructose, and there are questions around whether fructose is toxic in and of itself, or is it as toxic when it's in a fruit, but there's pretty good evidence from metabolic studies that overconsumption of fructose will lead to metabolic dysfunction. It's a five-carbon sugar versus a six-carbon sugar that is glucose. so. Overconsumption of fruit is probably not benign either, but in terms of relative toxin load, I think roots and berries are probably the things we would have eaten most. Hmm. But as I suggested earlier, I suspect we would have only eaten them during times of starvation or during times of inadequate hunting of animals. I really think that humans probably used plants as survival food and that they looked to animals as the optimal food and they couldn't always get them and so that when they couldn't get them, they would use plants as survival
0: food. But isn't it like, I mean, there are also, there also have to be very beneficial compounds in these plants, right? So, I mean, isn't it kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Like, some, you know, oxalate-containing plants or berries, perhaps. Like, as robust, resilient, you know, humans that are way larger and, uh, you know, Have way higher defense capabilities than a pest that is the typical enemy of these plants. I mean, shouldn't we have a bit of like resilience against these compounds? I mean, did we really make it through countless, you know, millennia to be taken down by a peanut or a, you know, tomato seed or a jalapeno seed? Like, it just doesn't, um, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but you know, as a fan of berries, for example, and oxalate-containing foods, spinach, things like that. Um, Spinach's a bad one. Bro. Spinach is a bad one. You gotta lose <laughs> that.
1: Spinach is really high in oxalates, bro. Is it? Yeah, it's, it's a colossal bomb.
0: But is everybody gonna generate kidney stones from these from these foods, or is it or is it just about balance? You know, I mean, can you can you tolerate a bowl a small bowl of spinach? That's a then. fantastic
1: question and I think there are again there are multiple questions layered in there.
0: But and like dose, right? I mean cuz yes e- and no. Every single treatment as a physician you uh, obviously you have to know that it's all about weighing the benefits against the risks. Every treatment has risks, right? But are are you the patient going to benefit, you know, in a way that is more you have to make a decision with every treatment, right? So, in a way, it's sort of like you have to make a treatment with every meal right like am i is this bowl am i going to be benefiting more from these berries or you know the bowl of spinach or kale or whatever than i am going to be harmed from them
1: and that brings up the point that i think is the center of this discussion which is what is the benefit and i think this is probably where you and i may find the biggest difference because i am not convinced that plants actually have unique benefits this is the whole idea of parmesis and polyphenols and i think this is where the main point of contention lies for people who are outside of carnivore or inside of carnivore. And so this is the question, right? I think you're absolutely right, it's risk-benefit, but from my perspective, there's no unique benefit to spinach. And Mm. if we're thinking about what are the potential benefits to spinach, and then I'll talk about polyphenols. People might say, oh, I'm gonna get some folate from spinach. Well, the bad news is that the folate in spinach is only about 30% as bioavailable as folate from animal foods because it's bound to glycoproteins. So there's really, if we're thinking about minerals and vitamins, I think there's pretty darn solid nutritional, biochemical literature to suggest that animal foods are far and away the best source of vitamins and minerals. And though people may look at vegetables and say, I'm gonna get vitamins and minerals from that, I would say there are no unique vitamins and minerals in those Uh, and I'm separating from polyphenols and phytochemicals Mm, at this point. There are no unique vitamins and minerals in those plants that you cannot get in higher quantities in a much more bioavailable form in animals. That is a fairly, I think, not a terribly controversial statement in terms of nutritional literature.
0: Okay, so... so Magnesium. Where are you getting magnesium from?
1: So magnesium, I think, is a very interesting one because if we look in plants in general, there's not a whole lot of bioavailable magnesium even in plants. Hmm. To get enough magnesium, to get your RDA of magnesium from kale, you'd have to eat more than a pound and a half of kale per day. <laughs> I could throw the question back at you and say, where are you getting your magnesium from? And you might say almonds and kale. Well, I would say, you know what? That magnesium is not bioavailable hmm. because in the almonds, it's bound to phytic acid or the phytic acid you're getting with the almonds is gonna cause you to excrete it. And in kale, you'd have to eat a pound and a half of kale Yikes. to get 400 milligrams of magnesium. It's much easier to get magnesium from things like spring water, which is another sort of idea, right? If you look at a couple of liters of Gerald Steiner, you can get 250, 300 milligrams of magnesium from that. Wow. There's actually a decent amount of magnesium in meat as well. I don't know off the top of my head, to the tea, but I think a pound of meat probably has two to 300 milligrams of magnesium in it. Wow! So between meat and liver and spring water, evolutionarily, you could imagine that you're gonna get a decent amount of magnesium. Mm. And actually, when you look back to the plant argument, it's very hard to get enough magnesium on a plant-based diet. And most people, I mean, this is why, and you know this, 80 plus percent of the population doesn't meet the RDA for magnesium in a day. Because it's really not that bioavailable anywhere, Hmm. you know, short of like, you know, magnesium citrate supplement, like there's really no magnesium anywhere, which to me suggests we're kind of missing the boat on this. Either the RDA is too high, there's something else contributing, or we're kind of missing the boat in terms of the way magnesium is metabolized, perhaps we're excreting it more. But I think that actually some of the best sources of magnesium for humans are spring water, rather than almonds and spinach and kale and things like this. So it's an interesting mineral, though, It, it definitely illustrates the fact that The minerals specifically are not that bioavailable in plants.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Potassium, where are you getting your your potassium from?
1: So potassium is another interesting one. And this gets into a little bit of nuance because we get this naturesis of fasting, where when we are fasting, we are losing more salt. Hmm. So when we're fasting or when we're in ketosis, we're losing more salt. Insulin is one of the hormones that actually how hold on to salt, which can be a negative thing in hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance because people can get overloaded with salt and that can create too much body volume and sometimes create a hypertensive response. But generally, salt is not Going to contribute to hypertension unless you're in an insulin resistant state. But when we have low insulin and ketosis or fasting, we will waste salt. And one of the ways our body holds onto salt is by increasing aldosterone, which can cause us to waste potassium. So the first thing about potassium is making sure that you are sodium replete. I think for the majority of people, You need sodium, and we know that other animals seek out sodium. Sodium is an important mineral for us to get. Thankfully, now we have adequate access to sodium everywhere on the planet. Uh In the past, I think it's something we would have sought out with abandon, and animals do this as well. So make sure you're getting enough sodium to get enough potassium, and then there's actually a decent amount of potassium in meat. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but I think that a pound of meat has a pretty decent amount of magnesium. You actually get close to the RDA of magnesium when you eat... Potassium, uh, you mean? A p- potassium, yes. Yeah. Uh, you actually get pretty close to the RDA for potassium when you eat about a pound and a half of meat per day. And then there are other sources of, mag- of potassium. You can get some potassium in spring water as well.
0: And the relationship between potassium and sodium, as you mentioned, I mean, it's it's, it's probably the case that you n- require less potassium when you're on a on a uh, lower carb diet, you know, a diet that's causing you not to hold on to as much sodium.
1: People have suggested that. People have suggested that. Stephen Finney published an article Mm. in which he suggested that perhaps you need less potassium. And ultimately, with regard to electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, in people on ketogenic or carnivore diets, if they are having cramps, I think they need more. And if they're not getting enough in food, I would just say take a supplement. I don't really have a problem with that because we know that sometimes ketosis or carnivore People are not having enough when they approach it. So if people are not uh, if people are not having enough magnesium and potassium in the muscles at baseline, when they go onto a ketogenic diet, they can get particularly uh, deficient. And in that case, I just say take magnesium citrate or take. It's fine to take an electrolyte supplement, but I think the point is well taken that it should be at least reasonable to get it from foods in some quality. Yeah. Quantity. Now,
0: are you so why 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 is your implementation of the carnivore diet? or just the just in general why is it only beef why not is it why isn't it beef and eggs or beef and salmon chicken oh i do do egg yolks you do do egg yolks i do do egg yolks okay
1: and again this goes back to what i was saying before that i think that the way i do it is not necessarily the prototype for the way everyone should do it everybody's got to do any diet whether yeah. it's ketogenic paleo whatever in the way that fits their life. I'm sort of a minimalist and a functionalist, if that's even a word, I just want something that gives me the most bang for my buck. And personally, I've found that ruminant animals are the most uh, enjoyable and are the most nutrient rich. Hmm. On a carnivore diet, people could eat everything that's when, from the animal kingdom if they wanted to, and it would still be things that are nutrient rich and not having plant toxins. Yeah, uh, There are people that definitely eat more pork than I do. I have trouble sourcing good quality pork. And in terms of seafood, I definitely will do salmon roe or wild salmon or scallops or oysters from time to time, but it's just not as much a part of my diet. So mostly day-to-day for me, as I'm kind of in this growth phase and writing my book and doing my podcast and all this stuff, it's mostly grass-fed organic beef and grass-fed organic beef organs and beef fat and egg yolks, and um, that's the majority of it, but I'll add stuff on top of it. But chicken, it's just not as good. It's also not as fatty, and I think the nutrient profile is... Oftentimes, ruminant animals are richer,
0: so it's just what works for me. What about what about iron accumulation? Are you as a, as a male? Are you worried about that at all? Are you giving blood monthly, like, or is that an overstated concern? I
1: think it's overstated, and I think unless people have polymorphisms for hemochromatosis or genetic mutations for hemochromatosis, the body will regulate the iron. There are mechanisms in place in the gut for the metals and the minerals to sort of excrete and not absorb when we get enough so i don't really worry about heme iron over accumulation i'm actually act at this point with the fat to protein ratio the way i do it on a carnivore diet i'm not eating an excessive amount of meat i am eating a decent amount of meat and liver so i'm probably getting a good amount of iron per day i'm eating about a pound a pound and a quarter of meat per day which isn't an excessive amount, and then a few ounces of liver and other organs. So I'm not eating as much iron as someone that's eating three to four pounds of meat per day. But if you follow your ferritin and the serum iron and the transferrin sat, I think you can watch it. And then you obviously watch your GGT, which is one of these indicators in the liver for oxidative stress. I did a podcast with Joe Mercola, Dr. Mercola, and he said the same thing. And he said, what's your GGT? And I said, well, it's 12, 11. It's very low. And there's no evidence of oxidative stress related to the heme iron at this point. And I think that that's an overblown concern for most people. I think most people have the opposite, where they're anemic and they don't get enough. And we know that non-heme iron, again, because it's glycoprotein bound or chelated um, because of the phytic acid, is just not that absorbable.
0: So if you are positive iron status, you just what you poop out the you know ex- ex- excess iron.
1: Yeah, yeah, you'll get rid of it in the gut. You won't oh, absorb it. Yeah, oh, and that's for people who do not have hematosis hemochromatosis polymorphism. So there's a gene, it's the HFE gene. You can see this on 23andMe, or you can look at your blood work. I mean, hemochromatosis is a big deal. Generally, people will get hemochromatosis regardless of their diet because they absorb iron so avidly. Mm. But certainly someone that had hemochromatosis, if they were to do a carnivore diet, would want to keep track of their iron very closely. And the treatment is fairly benign. It's phlebotomy. Mm. So you can just take the blood out and your body will make more. Giving blood. Yeah, you give blood.
0: Very interesting. But that's a, uh, I mean, so that, that would be a contraindication, I would feel like. If you have that gene, then you probably would want to be, approach a carnivore diet cautiously, or at least you wouldn't want it to be all beef.
1: You wouldn't want it to be all beef. You might want it to be slightly lower iron foods. You'd want to keep track of your iron much more closely. Got it. And know where you were. Right. You know, some people don't check or don't f- catch hemochromatosis until they're quite advanced. Mm. And in that case... You want to be aware of your iron status. Super interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: So polyphenols. I want to talk a little bit about about those because I feel like those are some of the most beneficial compounds in these plants. You, you mentioned hormesis, so maybe you can like kind of talk a little bit about about what hormesis is, and you know why you think that's like an over overrated concept.
1: <laughs> yeah. So polyphenols is a sort of this n- general term that we. I think what we mean when we say polyphenols is phytonutrients. Yeah. So I could say phytonutrients because there are many compounds that people talk about that are not actually polyphenolic, like sulforaphane, for mm-hmm, instance. Mm-hmm. It's, a, Correct. it's a glucosinolate or it's an isothiocyanate. But I think polyphenols has become colloquially meaning phytonutrients. You're kind of
0: anti-sulforaphane. I'm very anti-sulforaphane. Somebody pointed that out on on my Instagram.
1: I'm very anti-sulforaphane. Okay, okay. So let's let's We can talk about this. it. Yeah, yeah. So... So we're, we're talk, what we're talking about here are phytonutrients, which is kind of what people, because we talked about the minerals and vitamins, right? And I think that people may be willing to get on board with the idea that, okay, animal foods are richer in all the vitamins and minerals. But then the polyphenol, I should say, phytonutrient argument is really where the rubber meets the road. And I think this is where I would disagree with people in the most fundamental way. And I think this is where it gets very nuanced, and I'll try not to make it too granular. So This is the thing that we imagine is kind of magical about plants, that there are these chemicals that we would call polyphenols if they're from a certain class of organic molecules or phytonutrients, broadly speaking, which might include molecules like sulforaphane, which are not actually polyphenolic, that do have an effect in the human body that is unique. And these compounds don't occur in animals. My argument is that we are being myopic when we're looking at these compounds. And I talked about this a little bit on the podcast with Ben Greenfield. I conceptualize plants and animals as different operating systems, and we look at plant biochemistry. It's very different from animal biochemistry. They do photosynthesis. They fix carbon dioxide into uh, into carbohydrates, and they sort of so they sort of. Inhale carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen, we do the opposite. Their biochemistry, their cellular respiration is around photosynthesis. Ours is completely different. They have different mechanisms in them. So the idea that we would use plant molecules in a positive way in a human is just at the outset a little bit of an intellectual leap for me. Like it would be an incredible evolutionary accident for a plant molecule to be beneficial in a human biochemical process. And I think there's a misunderstanding here. With almost all of these phytonutrients, they don't actually insert themselves into our biochemical machinery. You can imagine human biochemistry and plant biochemistry as two watches with different gears and levers, right? The gears and levers in plant biochemistry are different than the gears and levers in our biochemistry. And... As I suggested earlier, and I can reiterate, there's really no lever in the plant biochemistry that we need to function that we can't get from an animal. And if you look at an animal's gears and levers, they look a lot more like ours. They're the same sizes, they kind of work in ours. Meaning that the animal forms of vitamins and minerals are much more like ours and much more bioavailable and much more similar. And we can see that with things like vitamin A, beta carotene in plants versus retinol form of vitamin A, different forms of the omega-3s, DHA, EPA in animals versus ALA in plants, which we don't convert. So it's not that any of these plant phytochemicals actually insert themselves into our biochemistry. Most of the arguments that these are beneficial is through a process called hormesis or that they act directly as antioxidants in the human body, which is pretty far-fetched because it's pretty hard to find evidence that they actually act as antioxidants in our body. Meaning, this gets into some complex chemistry. The plant molecules that we think of as quote unquote antioxidants don't actually really circulate in the human body and mimic molecules in our body like glutathione or other molecules that do accepting and donating of electrons in free radical redox reactions. So that is what an antioxidant in the human body does and we make our own and it's glutathione for the most part. There's other antioxidants, carnosine, vitamin E, CoQ10. Other molecules can do that in the human body, but plant molecules generally don't circulate in the human body and act as adjunctive antioxidants. And they also don't really insert themselves into our biochemistry. So most of the arguments that these plant molecules are beneficial for us are either epigenetic changes, meaning they affect our DNA in a certain way, or hormesis. And the hormetic argument is, I think, incorrectly sort of um, translated from something we see in the natural world. So there's environmental hormesis and there's molecular hormesis. And I would argue that I have not actually seen convincing evidence that molecular hormesis actually works. There's environmental hormesis, which is you are in the sun, you're in a heat, you're in a sauna, you're in cold water, you're exercising. These are things which break us down a little bit and then we get a better response or we get to be stronger. And we sort of see this pattern with plant molecules, but I don't think it translates well in terms of net benefit. The difference is this. If we go in a sauna, we're going to get heat shock proteins. We're going to be stronger at the end. There are plenty of articles which suggest that humans that do cold water swimming will have a decrease in glutathione, meaning they're having some oxidative stress, glutathione is running around, mopping up antioxidants, and and then the glutathione goes back up. And the difference is that those don't have anything toxic on the back end. They're they're just environmental hormetics, they're experiential hormetics. The plant hormetics are different. Sulforaphane is a good example. Sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant, which is why it triggers this NRF2 pathway in the liver. And the NRF2 pathway is the major antioxidant response element in the liver, which turns on the formation of glutathione in our body. So because sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant, it turns on the NRF2 pathway when we make more glutathione. That all sounds well and good and might look like we're going for a cold water swim, except that when we broaden our lens, and this occurs with all of the plant molecules that I've studied, I certainly haven't studied all of them, but there's so many to study. Mm -hmm. The ones that I've seen, when we broaden our lens, what we see is that these plant molecules are doing things in the other parts of the body that are negative, because they're from a different operating system, because our body isn't really used to them. They're almost like a plant, Virus, you know, not a virus like an infectious organism. I'm using I'm mixing two metaphors here But like a computer virus, right? They come in and they might do one thing to help get in the door But they can also muck up the system and you might think about it from a computer analogy. It's like drivers You don't need a Windows driver for a Mac computer So fortaphane is kind of like a Windows program on a Mac computer It does this one thing which you could say is good meaning that it increases your glutathione Notably, that's not something you need sulforaphane for, and you can do it in other ways. Like I say, you can just get plenty of glutathione by living a radical life, right? Cold, heat, exercise, sun, whatever. But on the back end, if we broaden our lens, and this is what we don't do enough in terms of research on plant molecules, we see negative effects because these molecules are foreign to humans. In the case of sulforaphane, it is a pro-oxidant, and it can oxidize molecules in our membranes. There's evidence that it does cause increased levels of 4-HNE and acrolein. So these are oxidative products of lipids, to lipid peroxidation, and it competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid and can cause changes in thyroid function. Throughout the world, one of the biggest causes of endemic goiter, this big hypertrophy of the thyroid gland, people walk on these huge necks, is consumption of goitrogenic foods, mm. which have molecules like sulforaphane, other isothiocyanates that do the same thing. This whole class of compounds, isothiocyanates, of which categories glucosinolates, of which sulforaphane is one, mimic iodine at the level of the thyroid and kind of mess up our thyroid. And this causes endemic goiter all over the world by eating these, what I would argue are kind of toxic plants. So in that, that's a good illustration of the fact this is really a net negative. It does give you a positive for glutathione, but you don't need that. You can just go jump in a lake, go exercise, and I'll talk about some fruit and vegetable intervention studies which suggest that when we look across time, there's really no evidence that fruit and vegetables do anything for our inflammatory markers or oxidative stress markers. That's pretty striking that there's no difference between people that are given tons of fruits and vegetables and people that don't have any fruits and vegetables. Mm. I'll talk about that study in a second. There's actually a number. But that's my issue with sulforaphane and it's mirrored by many other plant compounds. Resveratrol is this compound that had all of this promise in lower organisms, worms, mice, etc., And it was thought to be an epigenetic modifier of the sirtuin genes or at least turn them on and do these things. And the human trials have generally failed with metabolic syndrome, NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver, et cetera. And what we also know when we broaden the lens is that resveratrol also happens to be a strong estrogenic compound. Hmm. And it decreases testosterone precursors, specifically DHEA, and it can activate the estrogen receptor. So doing bad things on the back end. In fact, the whole family of flavonoid molecules has been shown to activate the 17-beta estradiol receptor. So all the flavonoids, which is a large compound, pound family of polyphenols can have an estrogenic effect in the body there's quercetin which is the one everybody thinks of it's a flavonoid these can mimic estrogen again it's like plant molecules coming from a different operating system and then influencing our biochemistry in a negative way my concern is that a lot of times researchers want to focus on what these things are doing well and then i say okay now expand the lens expand the lens and tell me what it's doing in the rest of the body and i've yet and i'm open to the fact that i may be wrong but i've yet to see a molecule from a plant that does something unique that we can't do another way in our life, by living a radical life, that doesn't have a bad effect somewhere else, right? In the case of resveratrol, we know we can activate the sirtuin genes by fasting, ketosis, right? We can just yeah. live a radical life, we get the same effects.
0: Right, but isn't, I mean, the bad effect, again, just playing devil's advocate, I mean, isn't that, isn't it, isn't the, we're saying that there's gonna be an effect, but that's a context dependent, proposition right like if you're if all you're doing is eating two pounds of bok choy every day like that famous case study right then you're going to grow a goiter but if you're consuming potentially goiterogenic foods and your iodine status is normal right you're eating shellfish and you know egg yolks and things like that then it's not going to pose any risk to the thyroid.
1: Well, I think that it's the idea, where's the benefit then,
0: right? In the, in the glutathione boost that you're going to get to the brain. Why you know? do you
1: need that? Because you, you get plenty from other places. And so that's the question. So let me talk about these fruit and vegetable yeah. intervention studies. So this has actually been studied in interventions. And there's four or five that I'm aware of. And they lasted between 24 days and 11 weeks. And in the variety of the studies, some were done on postmenopausal women. Some of them were done on people with metabolic syndrome. But they were all in non-smokers. But generally what they do in these studies is they either take a very low vegetable group or a very high vegetable group or a high vegetable group and a no vegetable group and they compare them at the end. And they look at markers of oxidative stress Mm -hmm. and inflammation and they look at markers of DNA damage. And invariably, I, I can send you all these studies, invariably in these studies, they see no difference at the end of the study, meaning that the addition of pounds of fruits and vegetables per day and they're different in every study, the details, did not change inflammatory markers, so HSCRP, immunologic markers, interleukins, did not change oxidative stress markers, so like DNA damage, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, F2-isoprostanes, and did not change markers of DNA damage. So there was no observed benefit with all these vegetables at the end of the study. So it's like, yes, theoretically, maybe, in somebody that's not doing other things, but it starts to be so subtle. It's like, really, where's the risk, where's the benefit? here and it's no unique effect. Hmm. And when we actually look at the interventions, they don't do anything. The other thing about many of the polyphenols we know is that they inhibit the digestion of other compounds. Tannins in wine, these are touted as fantastic. Well, tannins are phytoalexin, which is just a fancy word for a plant defense chemical. Most of these phytochemicals are phytoalexins. Most of them are plant defense chemicals. Resveratrol is produced in plants in response to attack by fungus or insects. Hmm. So it's a phytoalexin, it's a plant defense chemical. Um, sulforaphane, as you know, is produced when the animal chews a plant, when an enzyme myrosinase combines with glucoraphanin. Sulforaphane doesn't actually exist in the plant because it's such a pro-oxidant that it would create oxidative stress in the plant <laughs> potentially kill it. Wow. Yeah. Sulforaphane doesn't exist in native plants. It's it's a defense chemical when the plant is chewed. Right. So evolutionarily, that seems to be really the really clear mechanism of sulforaphane. And so this, this really, it kind of turns the whole hypothesis on its head. You know, if you step back and you're like, oh, wait a minute, the studies show at least in the interventional studies, there's no benefit. You would think that these people are eating. I mean, in many of the studies, they're eating more than a pound and a half of fruit and vegetables per day, and these are not like bananas or like wimpy. Like yeah, yeah. They're using Jerusalem artichokes and cabbage and wow. peppers and tomatoes and whatever they can throw at people. They're hoping to find an effect,
0: and they just don't see it. But still, I mean, don't you don't you pretty consistently see that you know groups that eat more fiber for example, fiber. We have yet to talk about fiber. Oh,
1: fiber is a whole rabbit hole, my friend. Oh
0: man. But like the microbiome, butyrate, these short chain fatty acids. I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. And by the way, and also, I mean, it's true that most polyphenols are not readily absorbed, right? They're very poorly bioavailable, but through the lens of the microbiome, right? Isn't that, isn't, isn't much of the, the benefit, the, the proposed benefit through their impact on the gut and the, and the, microorganisms that reside within it. So
1: the microbiome is a whole another rabbit hole. (laughs) The thing I'll say about, I'll say uh, briefly about fiber. Uh, So I said polyphenols inhibit nutrient absorption. Tannins are a digestive enzyme inhibitor. So moose actually have a compound in their saliva that degrades tannins Hmm. because so they're degrading the polyphenols wow. and if you look at animals in the wild especially the herbivorous animals they have numerous mechanisms to, de- to break down the polyphenols before they actually get to their stomach because the polyphenols are inhibiting digestion wow. so the animals don't want the polyphenols or so it would seem and humans yeah. don't really absorb them suggesting we don't really want them you would think that if we had had them evolutionarily this is just conjecture and they were beneficial we'd be like oh we want them absorb them right, right. we don't really absorb them they're foreign to us and the tannins actually inhibit our digestion so tannins are a negative on digestion polyphenols inhibit digestive enzymes and inhibit the absorption of nutrients fiber does the same thing so the whole fiber is a whole different rabbit, rabbit hole we can talk about fiber in the microbiome On other podcasts, yeah I we talk, could save
0: that but I mean I,
1: on but other podcasts I talked about fiber and diverticulosis fiber and cancer wow. fiber and heart disease there's no evidence that fiber is beneficial for any of those things including constipation there's really great there's a really great study showing that if you eat more fiber, you will have more bowel movements, but you won't have any less pain, you won't use any less laxatives, and you won't have any change in stool caliber or consistency, meaning you'll still have hard, difficult to pass stool. Hmm. So fiber doesn't has not been shown to cure constipation. It makes you poop more, but your poop is still painful and uncomfortable and unhealthy. And there's wow. actually studies with idiopathic constipation where the removal of fiber results in resolution of that suggesting overgrowth of like methanogen bacteria that may be paralyzing the gut. So there's some really interesting data on the absence of benefit to fiber in constipation Hmm. with regard to the microbiome. That is one of the most interesting conversations out there. And my impression is that no one knows you may be right about this. And I just think we don't know. I've never seen convincing evidence that we really know what polyphenols do to the microbiome. Do they change the microbiome? Yeah. I mean, turmeric is a great example. Curcumin. There, turmeric, curcumin is really poorly absorbed in the human body unless we use something like piperine. And the way that piperine inhibits, or the way that piperine increases the absorption of curcumin is by inhibiting the phase two enzyme in the human body that is go, that is going to detoxify it. So that's probably a bad thing. So hmm. it inhibits UDP glucuronosyltransferase. transferase, piperine does, which is black pepper. One of the reasons I don't use black pepper in my diet is that I don't want to inhibit that phase two enzyme because... Wow. I want to glucuronidate things, right? Like, I want to pass toxins out of my body, estrogens, other things that I want to glucuronidate. I don't want to inhibit that enzyme. But if you add pepper to your food and you eat curcumin with it, you'll absorb much more curcumin because you're inhibiting one of those enzymes that we use to get rid of the curcumin. Now, I said, okay, that makes sense. People were like, all right, maybe curcumin isn't all it's cracked up to be. There's a whole literature on curcumin. But they said, what about the way it affects the gut? And I've been sent numerous articles showing that, yes, the polyphenols do affect the gut flora. In my opinion, we just don't know if that's positive or neutral or beneficial. As Tommy Wood would say, in my opinion, and his, it's tassiography. It's reading tea leaves. (laughs) It's like, we just don't know. And I get a little bit wary. We're like, well, I mean, you can say that. But one of the major concerns with the diet is fiber. And people will say, well, don't you need fiber for a, quote, healthy microbiome? And I immediately say... What is a healthy gut microbiome? Because clearly, you don't, at least clinically. We see the absence of fiber improving constipation. We see fiber not being beneficial for diverticulosis. Fiber has no benefit on cancer. And then, if you look clinically, or at least anecdotally, what we see in the carnivore community is we don't see a whole bunch of people getting disordered gut flora or inflammation. We don't see Ulcerative colitis and Crohn's popping up or this diet would have died off long ago, right? What we see is people with those diseases getting better. And this is kind of fueling the movement is there's these anecdotes, admittedly, we need to do a case study and find some sort of a pilot study, but there are so many anecdotes. This is what originally got me interested in the carnivore diet is the improvement in autoimmune disease, whether it's skin, psychiatric, GI. There's published case reports of people resolving ulcerative colitis and Crohn's on a carnivore diet. So it kind of makes you scratch your head and go, well, if it's so bad for the microbiome, how can it resolve, or why would it do that? And we don't really know the answer, and I think that the microbiome is the most interesting conversation, and it's probably 20 years out, because we don't actually have data on this. What we know is that eating a carnivore diet will change the microbiome. Whether or not that's good, bad, neutral, or what, we don't know. And. In my conversations with Tommy, we kind of came to the idea that there are multiple ways to have a healthy gut microbiome. We know there are lots of ways to have an unhealthy gut microbiome. One of the metrics people use is alpha diversity. The problem with alpha diversity, which is a measure of the ecosystem, how many species are in an area, is that using alpha diversity as a measure doesn't tell you the quality of the individuals. There you can have a high alpha diversity and a bunch of proteobacteria in your gut, which are very bad. Hmm. So people will say, oh, if you need fiber to increase your alpha diversity, Unfortunately, that's not what we've seen in studies. I've seen a number of studies which suggest that fiber does not increase alpha diversity, but people get all hung up on it, imagining that you need tons and tons of plant fiber to have a diverse gut, and that's just not what we see in the literature, not what we see clinically. But I hear this repeated over and over, and it's like parroting to me, you know? It's like, why are people saying this? I wanna talk to someone who says that. I've never seen literature to suggest it's true. I heard Rhonda Patrick talk about a study on Rogan, and then I've heard other people Repeated it that if you don't have fiber, you'll digest the mucus layer of your gut. And as far as I can tell, that's based on one study from Cell, the journal Cell in 2016 done in mice. And they were inbred mice that were bred without a gut microbiome. And then those mice were introduced with a quote-unquote human-like microbiome of 14 species that liked carbohydrates. And then one group of mice had lots of carbohydrates and one group of mice had no carbohydrates or no fiber. And what they saw at the end was that, yeah, the mucus layer was slightly smaller in the mice with no carbohydrates. But then if you read the paper, they did the histology. They looked at the gut and they looked at the immune system underneath the gut. There were no pathological histology changes hmm. in the, the mice that had no fiber and a smaller gut microbiome. So in my opinion... That study's been blown way out of proportion. And if really that were the case, we would see carnivores everywhere with just like bloody diarrhea and horrible GI stuff. And I mean, I did a talk over the weekend at KetoCon, and I said, how many people here are carnivore or have heard about it? And almost the whole room raised their hand. And I said, how many people in the room have had their GI symptoms improve on carnivore? And almost everyone in the room raised their hand. And again, that's not a publishable study. Right. But that was an N of probably 250 people and it was like a 98% response rate of people that had improvement. Not 100%. We know some people have weird stuff in their gut. But generally speaking, GI symptoms, at least at a clinical level, get so much better when we eliminate fiber for a lot of people. So we just don't know. It's such an interesting discussion.
0: It's so, it's fascinating. Dude, well, you're a, a brilliant guy. I've learned a lot. And I'm definitely, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that I'm going to get on the carnivore bandwagon Anytime soon, but I'm definitely open-minded to it and you you definitely throw out a convincing argument So it's uh it's it's just super fun to listen to it and, and I also have a million about. more questions. So oh, yeah We'll do, we'll <laughs> do, we'll do part two. Yeah. We're, gonna,
1: we're gonna talk a lot offline. I'm sure you know what I think that the conversation if everybody were carnivore the conversation wouldn't be advanced Everybody can't be a carnivore. We need people to like advance the conversation We need people on different sides and I'm learning from you and I'm open to the fact that I'm wrong about some of this stuff too and you know I have said on other podcasts I hope to learn and maybe in the future I'll say oh I was wrong about this and hopefully I'll be big enough to admit that but <laughs> at this point you know I think it's just an interesting conversation I think that at this point I'm trying to accept my biases and yeah. realize them but I do think it's a really interesting concept, but it challenges so many of these notions that are so long-held.
0: Well, but it's so critically important in the the context of there being no such thing as a one-size-fits-all diet and everybody being so different. And, you know, we do live in a time where there is widespread immune dysfunction. You know, maybe in a perfect world, we would all be robust and resilient enough where we could all handle, you know, some of these quote-unquote toxic vegetables and we would all be the better for it you know that hormetic stress or whatever you want to call it but because the reality of the 21st cent of living in the 21st century is that you know many of us are born via c-section we're you know spoon-fed antibiotics for our entire upbringings um you know we've become obsessed with sterility sterility so while we can't yet define what a perfect gut biome looks like i mean i don't think it is that far-fetched to say that many of us are living with gut dysfunction you know autoimmunity on the rise tons of people have allergies and all kinds of other conditions where i mean it's if you're suffering from one of these conditions it's it's worth a shot i would say to give something like this a try
1: especially when we can establish that it's safe and that's i think the first step yeah. in any clinical trial with a drug the first step is is it safe and is it tolerable so as a physician obviously i can't ever give nutritional or i can't ever give medical advice to anyone on a podcast but one of the things I hope to be able to offer to people is just this counterculture idea that animal products are not dangerous. Meat is not gonna give you cancer. Meat is not gonna cause heart disease, which is a whole other rabbit hole we didn't go down on LDL yeah. and lipids and everything. And that, that an animal-based diet, a whole foods animal-based diet is safe. It's safe and it's doable. And if it's safe and it's doable and people wanna try, then try and see what works for you.
0: Totally. Yeah. Um, well, we're almost out of time. Before we get to the last question that everybody gets asked on my show, where can listeners connect with you? I'm sure we've got people are just you know writing down their questions and are going to have lots of follow-up uh, fodder for you. So how can people get in touch?
1: So the best place to find me, I've got a podcast. It's called Fundamental Health. And then my website is the one place I would direct people. It's paulsaladinomd.com. The greatest irony of this whole conversation is that my last name has Salad in it. <laughs> <laughs> but as Mark Sisson pointed out to me, it also has, if you look at my name, it's also salad, I know. So it's <laughs> S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O, or you could say my last name also has Dino in it, which I would say is like a dinosaur. So anyway, paulsaladinomd.com is the best place for most of my stuff. You can find links to my insider newsletter. You can find links to my podcast, but my podcast is called Fundamental Health. I'm also on Instagram, paulsaladinomd. Twitter, mdsaladino. I've got a YouTube under my name and people can find my contact information on the website if they want to reach out to me. I do work with clients privately, and my email is there if people want to work with me.
0: Do you do like telemedicine, or do they have to be in San Diego? Both. Both, cool. Yeah, It's cool to know. Um, All right. so this last question is a bit more philosophical. What does it mean to you to live like a genius? What does the genius life mean to you?
1: I think that for me it means, and hopefully this won't be too cliche, just a life that's intentional and mindful, and seeing the details. I like not missing the details. It's like, when I was a kid, I would go into an art museum and be like, ah, it's just, this is boring, right? And then I think that as I grew up and I got a more, maybe a smarter brain, maybe just a more developed consciousness, I could see the details and I could appreciate the nuance and things. So I think that for me, it means living intentionally and seeing sort of the beauty in a moment by being mindful and not missing those like really beautiful details that we're having throughout our day every day.
0: Beautiful. Dude, well, you're the man. Thank you so much for jumping on. You're welcome back anytime. And to all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for your time and attention. As always, I appreciate you. I hope your mind was blown over the course of the last hour. I mean, mine certainly was. So take a moment to spread the word about the genius life. Highlight your favorite quote from Dr. Paul or I. Tag us each on Instagram and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace.